Remain standing as we read from God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. It's on page 992 in the Bible on the back of your pew. Paul is writing to young Timothy, beginning in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's thank him as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth in our day when truth is rare. We praise you that your church abides forever, your infinite love, your everlasting faithfulness, your mighty power sustain your church so that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. We thank you for your revelation in Scripture, how one ought to believe in the household of God before a watching world. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for revealing to us the mystery of godliness, how the case of man's fall into sin was to be addressed, and how our salvation was to be wrought out in perfect harmony with your love and mercy, your righteousness and justice, certainly a mystery beyond our comprehension. We praise you for the greatest wonder in the universe, the fullness of the mighty God revealed in human flesh at Bethlehem on the first Christmas. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth to suffer and to die for our sin. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are at work even now proclaiming the glorious gospel message among the nations and that you are regenerating the hearts of your people to serve and honor you both now and for all eternity. Our profound gratefulness we offer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you again in the book of First Timothy, chapter 3, and we find ourselves at the close of the first half of the book and preparing uh, for the second half. And as we'll see this morning, it's uh, not only a turning point, but it's a, it's a central aspect of the entire book. Uh, growing up, I played sports quite a bit. Um, looking back now, especially with children and all the practices that were involved growing up, uh, I'm very thankful for my parents sharing, shuttling me all over the state seemingly for whether it was a soccer tournament or a baseball thing or a basketball thing or a swimming thing or whatever it might be. Uh, and, and as you're growing up, you can, uh, you enjoy sort of the, the delight of, of sports and competing and being with others on the field of competition. But as you get older, you begin to see that what drives the sporting world is not always just the naivety of some little boy, a few little boys who want to test their mettle against other boys. 
But there, there, there's sort of this force behind it of wanting to see people uh, grow and achieve and be powerful and use their ability with sports to advance their careers or whatever it be. And, and the older those children get, especially as getting into high school and college, the more corruption begins to come in. And so even like when we get to what just happened in South Korea, when you get to the Olympics, the pinnacle of the sporting world, and you see these great achievements, and then you hear them talk about, yes, it was all that hard work, and there was those 25 years of dedication, and, and this and that and that and that, and you're like, wow, that's amazing. And then two weeks later, you find that they were stripped of their medal due to the fact that they had taken performance-hanging drugs or something of that nature. And you say, what really is enabling and empowering these people? It's not the amount of push-ups they seem to be able to do. It's other things. And what are they trying to promote by that? The glory of sport or themselves? Well, as Christians, when we come to the Word of God, and we look at the Word of God, and we see the central truths that are there, we see that we are not only enabled and empowered for something, we're enabled and empowered by something to declare essential truth. What we'll see in this morning is that the gospel of Jesus Christ enables and empowers the Christian in a completely different way than the world looks for enabling and in a completely different way that the world looks for power. We're enabled and empowered to live in such a way so as to promote truth to a dying world. We're not called to be those who are promoting truth about ourselves. How much I can lift, how fast I can run, how successful my business may be, how whatever it may be. We're, we exist for a central truth. To promote truth that is not in us, but that has been given to us, to a world that is dying that is around us. It's something much greater at stake when you're a Christian. We live in the light of eternity now. It's no longer about just where I might be able to be with my financial portfolio in 10 years or this or that. It's about where will I stand before God on that last day. The gospel of Jesus Christ enables and empowers the Christian to live in such a way so as to promote truth to a dying world. We find ourselves in 1 Timothy 3 where we will see this clearly communicated to us. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16 is the purpose statement of the book. It is why Paul wrote to Timothy. And just by way of refreshment, Timothy is a pastor, young pastor seemingly, in Ephesus. It's a, it's a church that is young enough that there is still some development needing to happen. And yet it's a church that is old enough where falsehood has begun to creep into the church. False teachers have begun to press in upon the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we saw in chapter 1. And Paul is writing and saying, let's rebuke these men and let's set things in an orderly manner to protect the truth. Paul is uh, post his first imprisonment. We're not sure where he is, but he seems to be uh, free enough where he could move around and write to his young protege, Timothy. So we see in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon. We're not sure where he may be, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That is in many ways the purpose statement of the entire book. How ought one to behave in the household of God? And from Genesis to Revelation, 
God is quite interested in how we behave. How we behave is in many ways the reflection of what we believe. So for instance, in Deuteronomy 31, we'll remember that the uh, the people of Israel are now in the promised land or are just crossing into the promised land. We have that transition at the end of Deuteronomy between Moses to his young protege, which is Joshua. And, and, and Joshua gets this exhortation. He gets a commission from the Lord, not from Moses, but from the Lord. And this is what the Lord tells Joshua. And notice the, the, the emphasis on how Joshua ought to behave. Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. You could, you could take that same message and fast forward it to Paul's day and almost place Paul in the same position of exhorting his young protege Timothy in the place of Joshua and telling Timothy, be strong and courageous for you shall bring the church into the new creation that God will give them. God is interested, very interested in, in our behavior. He has just, Paul has just concluded with 13 verses. Of how two particular offices in the church, the elder and the deacon, are to behave. And we will see as we plunge into uh, chapter 4, and then specifically even more in chapter 5, this behavior and what it ought to look like between, uh, of relationships within the church, we'll see more emphasis even there. So God is quite interested in not only what we know, but in also in how we behave. And you'll notice how we ought to behave in the household of God, in the family of God. If you're looking at your Bible, I hope you are, you'll see in verse 5 of 1 Timothy 3, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? That's speaking about the family unit, father, mother, children. And here God is speaking about the spiritual family unit, And how we ought to behave in the spiritual family. The spiritual family unit, if you're taking notes, is more than just a family. So point number one this morning, from verse 14 and 15, is this. The church is the protector and clarifier of the truth. The church is the protector and clarifier of the truth. Verse 14 and 15. Now what do I mean by that? Well, you notice the household of God, if you follow Paul's logic, is the church and the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's fairly simple. In verse 14 and 15 right there. The household of God is the church. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So first of all, let's think about the church as the protector of truth. It's a pillar, it's a buttress, These are. it's a stronghold, it's a wall, it's a place that you go to find uh, the reality of the truth. It, it guards the truth, the church guards the truth from falsehood. Okay, So this is way more than, uh, than, than simply coming to church and enjoying a meal, which we will... In a few minutes with one another. Your primary duty is to exalt the true Christ. 
and fend off all else that would be a false Christ. So we come and we are encouraged in many ways of the true and sound doctrine that is the truth. And then we go out to the world and we we protect it. And we say, no, that is not the truth. Works-based salvation, you can't get the, Not the truth. Jesus was a good man, but not the Son of God. Not the truth. No. And we remember things like John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And then the question, and who is the truth? Well, John chapter 14 answers that for us. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is the central truth that the church protects. No one comes to the Father outside of Jesus Christ. Carrying on even then, John 18. You could say in many ways that John begins with truth and ends about the truth, meaning Jesus Christ. John 18, we find Christ before Pilate and he says to him this in verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. That is the reason Christ came, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? We are the pillar and buttress of the truth. We are more than just a a safe, a a place where the truth is protected. We're also a place where where the, the sinners find protection by that truth. Where the, the church is a safe haven for sinners. Right? Because it's the truth that sets up what that haven is. That is Christ saying, come, come to me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you protection by the truth of who I am. And even more then, the church is the clarifier of the truth. Think of a, a lighthouse. On the edge of a rocky shore, its beacon blasting out across the ocean there and guiding and clarifying for the ships coming in of where the safety might be. That is the church, the church of the living God. The church is the, is the place where we, we shine out the clarity of the truth to say this and this alone is where you might find safekeeping with Jesus. It is through this way. The church is the protector and clarifier of the truth. Notice, the church is the church of the living God. We don't serve a false God. We don't serve a a God who is like the other idols of the world. We serve a God who is living, who is powerful, who manifests his power within the church. Uh, ESV 
One of the ESV study Bibles puts it this way. The church is the place where God most clearly manifests his living presence. So you come to the church and you see his power displayed in taking a person that loves sin, that loves themselves, and transformed by some mystery over to someone who loves others, dies to themselves, advances not their own cause but someone else. That's a mystery. How does that happen? That's the manifold presence of God working out his power through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see that present in the church. So you come to church to see Christ central. You sit in a pew next to a person to look at them and say, that person was dead and now they're alive. And they're singing and delighting in truth. The manifold presence of God displayed within the church, the living God. And we've seen that the, the, the church is just another Another picture of the way God displays himself, unites himself, uh, is present with his people. So we could go from Genesis to Revelation on this, and we should. We won't have time to do it, but let me just mention, you could go to the garden and say the garden is the first temple, is the first church, is the place where God dwelt with his people. His glory being on display. He being in close fellowship with his people. Sin comes into the world. But God still desires to display his presence through his people that he has chosen. And so he does that with the temple and the tabernacle. Dwelling with his people in order that the world, the nations around the nation of Israel at that time, might know these people serve a living God. And we can even think of this, this pillar being the, 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 the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day in Exodus 13, where it was clear to any other nation, this is an unusual nation. This is a nation that has their God dwell among them and acts for them and leads them and guides them. And then we get to even the church, where that's the same thing. God Manifesting his glory, being with his people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only now is his presence revealed in a a, a temple or a tabernacle, it's dwelling within our hearts, Jeremiah tells us. He's made us a new covenant. It's now Christ within us, the hope of glory. We don't have to go to the, the tabernacle to see it. We serve the church of the living God. Oh, what it's what, what a delight it is to be those who have been called out of false thinking into truthful thinking about God. And God's house is enabled then to know that he is living. We are people that by the work of Jesus Christ are enabled to know that God lives. And therefore, we're about the business of our Father, our God. This week, we had the opportunity, uh, I had the opportunity to study the entire book of First Samuel. And so I spent three days just going from First Samuel 1 all the way to the 31. And, and what was clear to me is, is there's two main characters. There's more, but there's two main characters, right? Saul and David in First Samuel. 
And what continually struck me is the biggest difference between the two was not what they did. Not what they did. They both did neat things. But it's what they were about. One was convinced of the living God. And so he was zealous for the things of the living God. David, who's this Philistine? First Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Who is this thing that would defy God? No way I'm not gonna allow, I'm not gonna stand for this. I'll march out there and take him on. And even if I die, that will not happen. And Saul, not about the things of the living God. Those that are gods, those of us that have been saved by the person and work of Jesus Christ are about the things of God as our Heavenly Father. So we live and we move and have our being because of Jesus Christ. We exist as the church of God. We, we then, our belief enabled by God is worked out in our behavior, in our action, and, and the church being that which guards and protects the truth. Guards and protects the truth. Point number two. Point number one, the church is the protector and clarifier of the truth. Point number two, the truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've already spoken about that, but we'll look at it in greater detail. Look with me at verse 16. Verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. This is the work of Christ he's speaking about. He, meaning Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What you see here is the the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the coming to this world in human flesh. What you see here is the authentication of Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. What you see here is the proclamation of the Son of the living God who has come in the form of flesh to die for wavered people, for dead people. And then you see the glorification of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is in many ways a a song, a confession, a doxology, a creed, a statement of faith, if you will, about the person of Jesus Christ, person and work of Jesus Christ, that Paul, not ironically at all, but with great plan and purpose, sticks at the very middle of this book. That Jesus Christ is to be central in the church. And therefore, he is to be the one who drives the behavior of, of the church. Now, if you're looking at verse 16, <clears throat> let's just note two things. And we'll look at them separately. First of all, that the church is to be Christ-centered. That is, Christ is to be the essence of the church. And what do I mean by that? Well, you'll notice that Paul here in his confessional statement about the person and work of Jesus Christ, packs just immense doctrine in here. It almost seems short-sighted by Paul to put so much doctrine into one succinct statement. And so there isn't time this morning for me to flesh these out, but we could preach one entire sermon on he was manifested in the flesh. We could preach one entire sermon on vindicated by the Spirit. Another one on seen by angels. But you all want to get through First Timothy at some point in your life. So we're not going to do that. 
But let's just look and see what he's doing as it pertains to Christ being the essence of the church. He was manifested in the flesh. In the Greek there, it actually means God. God was manifested in the flesh. God sent God. The Father God sent the Son of God to this earth in the flesh. And you will see that Genesis begins this. Genesis 3.16, the promise of a seed that is going to come. You see it continue on all the way into Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7. We see verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word that is God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Romans 8 verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God had to send his son in the flesh. And the Bible gives witness to this from left to right. He was not only manifested in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit. What does that mean? He was he was authenticated. Matthew 3 verse 16. When Jesus was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water. And behold the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God. Descending like a dove. And coming to rest on him. And we know that John says. Behold the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Not only did the Spirit authenticate him, it was by the power of the Spirit in which he rose from the dead. Seen by angels. I think it's amazing that it's no accident that Christ Birth was proclaimed by angels and his resurrection was proclaimed by angels. Luke 2.13 And suddenly there was the, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Luke 24 While they were perplexed about this behold two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. There's the, the, the garden situation. Peter and John. Where is the Christ? And two men, two angels appear to proclaim the fact that he had been raised from the dead. Oh, so there's so much here. Proclaimed among the nations. Is this not what the, the, the book of Acts is all about? All about. That, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is no longer just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. It's not just for one nation. It's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. We recognize then that it is, it is the, the glory of Jesus Christ to see himself as the King of kings and Lord of lords above every nation. And even one day we'll know in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. 
from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Are you getting the picture yet? I hope you are. That the truth that Paul is articulating here to Timothy is not, it's not just a little something thrown in there. He is summarizing the entire glory of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation in a doxology. He's simply giving, giving witness to what all the heavens and all of the earth will at one time be united to say, and that is Jesus Christ is King. That is what he's doing. And therefore he's saying, Church of the living God, the central aspect has got to be the one who all of creation will say is king. We are simply embassies of the heavenly kingdom. Local churches are. We exist to simply say, we're from another nation. We're from another nation. We're from another nation. He's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming back. And giving him glory. And then you see finally, he was taken up in glory. Acts chapter 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they're all asking, right? That's what many people wanted in that day. Jesus, are you going to get this kingdom now? And he's saying, no, there's, there's one. I'm going to glory. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this local area. It's of the heavens. Hebrews 1, verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is in glory now, ruling and reigning. That is the hope of the church of the living God. So, if he's not, if Christ is not only the center or the essence of the church he's also the power and the source of the church the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord the the only way we are here is because of the power of Jesus Christ to change sinners the question has to be asked this morning are you part of the pillar and buttress of the truth are you in his household Is Jesus Christ central in your life? Have you submitted yourself to Him? You were born in rebellion to Him. Your sin condemns you to death. Scriptures tell us the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. Have you you submitted yourself to Him? You cannot do that save the person and power of Of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes in right relationship to God except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Have you been washed by the blood? Have you had your soul cleansed by the blood of Christ? Oh, what a joy it is to know that. Do you know that? Even in your sin, can you say with confidence, I am redeemed. I am a part of this household. I have been given a place. My room will not be given to any other. Are, are you, can, can you say that this morning? You can know. You can know. Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone? 
Will you confess your sin and repent? Will you trust him alone to be that which saves you? Do so. Do so today. What's our application going forward from here? As we come to a close. Well, I think it's this, simply. That Christian, we must behave in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not about us. Someone takes a performance-hanching drug to advance themselves. If you want to take the, the crude analogy forward, our drug is the gospel of Jesus Christ to advance not ourselves. It's to advance him. So are we living in such a way that people can see that? And as I said last week, last week it may be that the way you live is it, it advances Christ less by what you're doing or not doing, and yet how are you reacting to what you're doing and not doing? In the sense that you're the one living as a, a, re, a constant repenter, going to people constantly and saying, forgive me, I lied to you. Forgive me, I deceived you. Forgive me, I spoke angrily with you. Are we those who are living in the light of the gospel? And what that means is, Christian, that you're one who does not harbor sin, but one who harbors the truth. And so you are constantly on the mission to evict sin. So what sin needs to be evicted that you may be harboring right now? Or are you harboring sin? If not, praise God. But is there sin that you are allowing to just have a little corner? Every once in a while you slip it some Cheerios and you keep it well fed. Just, you know, enough to stay around. Brothers and sisters, if you are, if you're, if you're involved in any way in a sin that you have allowed to remain in your life, please today repent of it. Evict it. Get it out. It brings you no joy. Humble yourself. Go to a brother and sister. Let them help bear your burden. Confess your sin. Whether it's, whether it's pornography, whether it's lying, whether it's deceit, whether it's a social relationship, whatever it may be. And there's way more other ones. Let's just pick a few that are prevalent in our nation. That's not outside the church, that's in the church. So let's be those who are constantly evicting that. Are you selfish? Let's kill that. Let's be about the business of God, which is he is zealous for his house to be a pure house, a house of prayer, a house of worship. And let's be zealous for our own hearts to be that which is a pure heart. May we be those who are continually flipping the tables in our homes. You get my point, right? Don't go home and flip your dining room table. But flip the tables within your hearts and say, no, no, this isn't going to live here. Uh Uh-uh. He's the master of this house. That's what Paul is calling for here. Let's behave in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is so wonderful, that's what's at stake. It's What's not at stake is how I look, which is what we do in our pride, not wanting to confess our sin. It's how I look today compared to everybody else. That's not what it's about. It's about the gospel shining forth clearly. And so may we be those who are, are quick to do that even 
this week. After all, Ephesians 2 tells us, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to do His work of, 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 of keeping a clean home. 1 Peter 2.5 You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Maybe be those who are are faithful good stones he's using uh, to build him a house that is proclaiming his glory to all the nations. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you for the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have enabled us and empowered us to live as a holy people. We thank you that you have changed our sinful desires to be ones that are godly. And yes, we fall back into our sinful ones. But we thank you for your spirit that convicts us and and moves us back to be zealous about the things you, our Heavenly Father, are zealous about. Namely, that you would get all the glory. Father, we thank you that you secured forever, on earth and in the heavenlies, past, present, and future, and for all of time, your glory as proclaimed and portrayed and worked out in the person, work, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, rule, and reign of Jesus Christ. And that you have enabled us by your spirit as believers in Jesus Christ to be those who live in the light of that and are proclaiming that to the world. Father, we ask that you would help us to behave well. And we thank you, Father, that you... You really are the one who see how we behave. Our friend might see the smile, but you know what's going on within the heart. Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that is harboring sin, claiming Christianity, that your loving hand of discipline would weigh heavy upon their heart. That they would not be able to Go another day without confessing and repenting that that sin is wrong. Father, I pray if there's someone here that has never submitted their lives to Jesus Christ and claimed only the blood of Jesus to be that which saves them from their sin, that you would open their eyes to the truth of their need for Jesus Christ and the power that Christ has to save them from their sin. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us even even now as we would eat a meal with one another. That as we would, we would be able to encourage one another in Christ. We would bear one another's burdens. We would strengthen one another in the fight. We would love on one another and help one another in this journey that is the Christian life. All with the knowledge that the end is glory. And that there is even glory now for the believer in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for your truth. 
We ask that you would help us here at FCF to be one that guards and protects and proclaims the truth. That we would behave well. And that you would gain glory through our church. We ask all of these things in the precious and holy and majestic name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.